The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 14. Episode 39. This is Writing Excuses, positioning your book in the marketplace. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Howard. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Dan. I'm Dong Wan. And we are recording live on the WXR retreat in front of a studio audience of our attendees and students and awesome writers. When you, when you heard from them much earlier this year, uh, they had questions. Some of them still have those questions, but this is not an episode where they get to ask them. Um, we're talking about how you as an author go about positioning your book for the editors who will edit it, the publishers who will publish it, the bookstores who will, who will shelve it and bookstore it, and ultimately the readers who will read it, because the marketplace is a large and complex thing. Um, Dong Wan pitched this idea to us, and so I'll just let him start. Positioning is one of my favorite things to talk about, um, in part because it feels like the most essential question in all of publishing. Um, it took a long time for me to really understand this concept, and uh, I, I was lucky enough to work for a very brilliant publisher who helped me work through what publishing as a separate activity is, in, which is independent from editing or releasing the book or whatever it is. And for me, the, it really clicked in when I started to understand this concept of positioning. So when we talk about um, publishing, the thing that's always really important to me, what feels like to me the more I do this, is really the only question is, who is this book for? All the other questions that we ask along the way sort of derive from this question of, if we're going to publish this book, who are we trying to publish this, publish this book for, and how do we reach that audience, right? So positioning is sort of the, the summation of a lot of the efforts that we do to try and reach a certain audience. Um, positioning encompasses uh, title, uh, copy, the, what the jacket looks like, um, how we're releasing it, so what price point is it released at, uh, what formats is it released in. So all of those things are how we're positioning it in the market to reach the target readership, which is usually something we're defining by, are they fans of this other series? Or are they fans of this other author? Um, so when we position something, we really want to make sure it's in the right genre, it has the right look, the copy is doing everything it needs to do, and we're promoting it to the right audience. We touched on this a little bit in the, uh, uh, the comp titles episode. Um, and how when you pick comp titles, part of what you are doing is constructing a Venn diagram for your target readers. Um, uh, but there's a lot more to it than, than just comp titling it in mm -hmm. terms of defining this. Yeah, and this process is more complicated than simply saying, well, I want everyone to read my book. You don't get to say that. 
um, you need to actually pick a group and figure out how you are going to reach them. This is one of those things that I wound up learning through the the puppetry, which I'm sure surprises everybody. (laughs) The thing for us was that because we were taking puppet shows into elementary schools, we had we had a show and we needed to appeal to appeal to a, a, an audience of of kids. So we needed to convince people that an audience of kids were going to be interested in this. But we also needed to convince people that it would fulfill certain requirements. So for that, we had to position it as being an educational thing. While at the same time, I'm like, we're doing Pinocchio. So we would have to find the educational things and bring those to the forefront in the way we were presenting it, knowing that once they, once they cracked the cover, so to speak, once we were there, it would do the job it was setting out to do. At the same time, we couldn't position it as a scientific inquiry if that was not the experience that we were going to deliver. And that, I think, is one of the things that is, is challenging a lot of times when we're thinking about about books is that we, the positioning actually has to be for two different audiences at the same time. And we forget that a lot of times. And it's also really important that what's actually in the book, the content of the book, which is something it feels like we don't really talk about sometimes when we're on the business side, but the content of the book has to be in alignment with the packaging and with the positioning, right? Um, If you're saying that this book is for fans of Naomi Novik, for example, but really, it's going to read like a uh, uh, like a big military thriller. Then that's not going to really align very well, um, and you're going to have a lot of frustrated readers. And no matter how good your positioning is, if it's if if it's fundamentally a lie or if it's fundamentally not honest to the reading experience, um, it, it, your whole project's going to fall apart. So one of the things we've been making this joke about the homework for this particular series of talks I've been giving on the podcast that it's about soul searching in part because you really need to have a very clear idea of what your book actually is. Um, Craft is often about writing the thing and letting your subconscious run free and not thinking aggressively about it. Once you are done with that, however, once it comes to the publishing part, you need to take a step back and have a very clear-eyed view of what are the merits of your book? What's exciting about it? What do people like about it? And that will tell you a lot about how you can position it, how you can frame it so that publishers, agents, and then ultimately readers will be very excited about the thing that you're trying to present to them. One of the challenges I've had recently with Schlock Mercenary is that I've gotten, I've gotten to a point in the story where it is totally story-appropriate and extremely science fiction-y fun to explore the relationship between people who are grieving the death of a loved one and the cloned replacement of that loved one. And I could noodle on that and tell jokes on that for weeks. And and I will never forget, it was several years ago, uh, somebody in one of the forums, I don't remember which one, said, I'm liking the story, but it's been a while since anything exploded. Oh, that's right. Oh, I'm telling a science fiction comic in which things are supposed to explode. And so uh, positioning my book in the marketplace, that's been done. And while there are nuances I am adding that might cause it to shift its position a little bit, there are still readers who are counting the number of weeks between explosions (laughs) 
and I need to keep their numbers below about four. And a lot of this <laughs> is very much about meeting reader expectations. So you can shift your positioning in the middle of a series, and we see a lot of people do this. But if you're going to do that, you need to find other ways to signal to them that you're making a shift in positioning. So your cover style might change a little bit. The, if you've used a very rigid title format, um, which we see in a lot of series, you may want to switch that up, invert it. What you need to do is have a lot of signposts and signals that this is for a slightly different readership than what has been before. And that way, people can make an informed decision about whether or not this book is for them. Let's have a, uh, a non-book of the week of the week. I am so excited about this web series. It's called Black Girl in a Big Dress. I, this hits all of my nerdy buttons. So the main character is a black girl in a big dress, strangely, it, truth in advertising. But she, uh, she is a cosplayer, and she is specifically a cosplayer who loves Victoriana. And so the entire web series is dealing with the idea of of what people of expectations. She, uh, she has a cousin who's like, uh, black girls don't say, don't, don't say that. And she's like, excuse me, I'm a black girl and I say these things. And there's all of this stuff that's, that's interrogating, uh, race and expectations and society. And, and also some of these steamiest love scenes where two people are sitting quietly by a fireplace, not speaking to each other in exquisite clothing. And one of them will say, this is the most romantic thing I have ever experienced. <laughs> and the other one will say something like, yes, my dear, I do believe we are in love. And then they'll go back to reading. It's amazing. I love this. They, he kissed her glove. <gasps> it's great. It's, um, it's funny. Uh, there's beautiful costumes. It's short. You can binge it. Uh, she is just getting ready to do season two. So go to YouTube and Black Girl in a Big Dress. I am a huge, huge fan of this. Okay. Um, back, to, back to marketplace, marketplace positioning. Uh, what, are, what are some mistakes that we've seen authors make, that we've seen publishers make? Um, if we're not afraid to name names, then that's fine. If we're afraid <laughs> to name names, then anonymize it. Well, I'll, I'll actually talk about something. Um, it was a deliberate choice that we made with the, uh, the Glamorous History series, and I sometimes wonder what would have happened if we had made a different choice. Um, the first book is straight-up a romantic. It's, it's a straight-up romance uh, Austin pastiche. And so we have come up with a, uh, I say we, I, I, every time they showed me a cover, I'm like, that's beautiful. But the covers are all very, very romance heavy. The fourth book is, is a heist novel. It's like, it's not a romance. And I have wondered what would have happened if we had shifted the positioning on that when it came out, whether I would have lost audience because of doing that, because it no longer looked like the rest of the books in the series, or whether I would have picked up new audience because anyone who was interested in a heist would recognize it as such. And so it's not so much as a mistake as it's like, this was a choice that we made. What would have happened if we had made a different choice? One thing that can be really interesting is if you go to the bookstore or go into the market and look for books that have been recovered over uh, the course of that book's life cycle, right? So uh, I think Joe Abercrombie's uh, first law trilogy, I think it's on its third or fourth set of covers at this point. And they've established many different looks for that book. And each one of them has worked in its own way and, and continued to build his career. And I think it's really fascinating to see how they've chosen to position that book over time to 
sort of update where the trends of the marketplace are and get a sense of who his audience is and continue to evolve that and grow that and refine that positioning. Um, that can be a really useful thing for you guys as consumers um, to take a look at. And, and you can start to unpack some of the logic of what they're doing. Uh, if this book has a very maps-oriented look, a very Lord of the Ringsy kind of vibe, versus this, which has a very cinematic vibe, versus the new style, which is a more abstract art vibe, and get a sense of why are they making those choices. Um, you know, one thing that we hear a lot in the industry is a lot of readers um, love to complain about covers, and I completely understand why, because you have a very powerful uh, attachment to the cover design often. But those are very deliberate choices that are being made by the publisher. You may not always agree with them, but what you can do is start to unpack the logic of why they've done this thing, um, even if it's a thing that doesn't work out or if it's a thing that you think is completely wrong for the book. Um, it can be a really interesting thought exercise to try and reverse engineer what was the process the publisher was going through when they were revising the positioning of this thing that's already been released and usually already successful. I've learned a lot about this particular topic doing hand selling at conventions mm. because it is incredible to talk with readers and see which lines work on them and which lines don't. One of the things that stands out to me, and I've got a couple stories the one that stands out, and I cannot remember the author's name, but uh, he's an epic fantasy author who... Brandon Sanderson. This, no, but he uses Brandon as his thing. Uh, he's, he's, he shares a booth with me sometimes, and you know we'll all be in there, all these authors kind of shilling our books to people. We all have our own pitches. He just sits in the corner. He doesn't have a big billboard. He doesn't have anything. He just has like a big three-inch thick fantasy book. And people walk by, and he'll just kind of be sitting on his stool with his arms folded and say... You guys like epic fantasies, kind of sort of like Brandon Sanderson and George Martin, and he sells out every single time. Uh, and so knowing who your audience is and having the product that they want is kind of the step one, right? Making sure you know who they are. If, if you are this audience, you will buy his book. And it's really kind of amazing to watch him do nothing and work just because he knows who his audience is so clearly. Um, one of the other people, and I'm going to mention uh, Claudia Gray, who, among her many fantastic books, she has a Star Wars book called Lost Stars, which is a YA romance. It is so clearly a YA romance, but it is also a Star Wars book about an Imperial officer and a rebel pirate who are in love with each other. And she has found over the years that she needs to present that book entirely differently depending on who comes. She can 100% sell that YA romance to a 50-year-old man every single time, but she doesn't pitch it as a YA romance. She pitches it as a Star Wars book and sets up kind of all of the, the background information about what's going on with the Empire and the pilots and things and how it connects to the movies. And so knowing who the audience is and, you know, in that situation, we can adapt on the fly. In other situations, you have to plan ahead. Uh, with my book, Extreme Makeover, standalone science fiction, I sat down and I was trying to figure out how to position that book and who the audience was, exactly what Dong Wan was talking about at the beginning, and realized that one of the audiences I had not considered is, uh, how, to, how to say this? It's a book about the beauty industry. It's a book about a, a beauty company destroying the world. And I used to work in the beauty industry. I worked there for eight years. Uh, and so for me, this was just a book. But once I identified how much more easily it was to sell a book about the beauty industry to women than to men, that entirely changed the way that I started positioning my book. I've 
pointed out in the past when we've talked about uh, the challenges between uh, self-publishing and uh, publishing through the, you know, the agented, edited uh, model, um, it's the difference between can you sell your book to anybody out on the street? Uh, you know, can you sell your book a thousand times or can you sell your book once? And increasingly, I've come to realize that if you think you have the skill set to sell your book a thousand times, if you can make this pitch, if you can recognize your audience, if you can go, huh, do you like big fat fantasy books? Well, there's one. And sell it, then you probably have the skill set to take it to an agent, to take it to an editor, because you have already identified the audience for them. And if you can convince them that you have already identified the audience, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dong Wan, but I think they're really happy when that walks into the the room. Um, And, you know, the one thing I really want to get across, and thank you for bringing this up, Howard, is that it's the same skill set. It's the same challenge, right? Uh, If you're self-publishing, if you're working with a small press or a big five press, positioning is still the same fundamental question. Who is this book for? How do we reach that audience? The only difference is how many people are working to solve that problem with you. If you're on your own, self-publishing, it's on you to figure it out. And if you're good at that kind of stuff, you're going to do great in that market. Um, if you don't know where to start with that, then what you're really going to have to do is find a bigger team who can help support you and help you answer some of those questions. I'm going to mention a podcast that we did in a previous season, which was with Michael Underwood, and that was Hand Selling Your Book, mm-hmm. which talks a lot about it. That's a good one to go back and listen to because it does talk a lot about the tools that you can use once you've identified the audience to kind of adjust your your presentation for them. Uh, and then the other thing that I just want to draw a line under is that when we're talking about audience, we are talking about being specific yeah. with who it is. It's not everybody, it's being super specific. And sometimes the easiest way to do that is rather than think, ah, it's for women. Mm -hmm. Think about a specific woman or a specific set of women that you know, and and sometimes even bring them in as your early readers in the development process while you are, so that you are positioning in some ways from the get-go. And that uh, brings us around quite nicely to the homework, which Dong Wan has for us. So, like I said, the central question in publishing is, who is this book for? So, what I'd like you guys to do is to start figuring out a way to answer that question for yourself. This answer will evolve over time as you continue to write this book, as it enters the publishing process. But if you, if you start now and if you start early and decide who your reader is, that'll help you define all the other parts of your process, including the writing process and the creative process. So what I'd like you to do is make a list of attributes of your target readership. Who's the demographic that this book is for? And the best way to do that is using the comp title. So you can use that as a proxy and help you start identifying who's the fan base for this book, how do I I reach them? How do I identify them? Thank you, Dong Wan, and thank you to our audience here on the Liberty of the Seas. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. This episode of Writing Excuses was engineered by Bert Grimm and mastered by Alex Jackson. It was recorded in front of a live audience at the Writing Excuses Retreat 2018 at Sea. Your hosts were Howard Taylor, Mary Robinette Kowal, Dan Wells, and Dongwon Song.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.